This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Simon Tam founded his Asian American dance rock band, The Slants, in 2006. Known for the community activism, the band dedicated itself to overturning stereotypes, a mission that started with the name, which refers not only to individual perspectives and guitar chords, but to Asian ethnic identity. I probably don't need to go too much into this because of the the uh, concert that we just had, so I'll just uh, transfer over. It will be in conversation with Robert Barnes, and uh, he's a reporter for the Washington Post covering the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, welcome and thanks for coming out. It's nice uh, to see people who care about books and ideas uh, and maybe even the Supreme Court a little bit, I hope. Um, the uh, I, I'm the only one who's not silencing my device because the court was particularly busy today and I may get a, a call from my editor at any time, So, um, but I, I hope not. I told him to leave us alone. Um, one of the things I like covering about the Supreme Court are the cases uh, and uh, the people that come before the court. And when I started covering this beat about 12 years ago, I told my editors that one of the things I wanted to do was when it uh, warranted, I wanted to go out and meet the people whose cases are before the court. Because for me, it's easier to meet somebody, to understand their case. It makes me help, helps me to write the story in a way that I think is more accessible. Um, and so... Um, that's how I met Simon and the band. Um, I called them to see if they had any gigs coming up. This was right before um, the court was going to have oral arguments. They said no, but I could come out and listen to them. They would all be together when they were putting the finishing touches on one of their albums at a studio in Eugene, Oregon. And so I said, I thought, oh, that sounds cool. Now, sounds cool was the operative language there. I don't know if you've ever been with a group that is putting the finishing touches on a record, but it pretty much consisted of the lead singer singing the same thing over and over again, I'd say 60 to 70 times, uh, while uh, they said, no, nah, that's not quite right. Uh, try it this way. No, try it that way. Uh, but. Simon and I had a good drive from Portland to Eugene uh, and got to talk about the case and, uh, and his background a little. And so we're going to do some of that. I'm going to ask him some questions about the case and the book, and then I'm going to open it up. And I hope that uh, you will ask questions as well. Uh, don't make me call on you, because I, I will if I have to. Um, all right, Simon. Uh, Let's get a little bit about your background, and I think I want to start with your parents and how thrilled they must have been when you told them that you were dropping out of college and going to join a band in Oregon. Well, <laughs> thrilled is that. I speak as a parent. <laughs> I think, well, first of all, I don't, they, I want to say they were thrilled, but I was very, very surprised very cut off guard when they decided to actually support that decision. I think I was just wrestling with depression and I was really unhappy uh, with, with a number of things that happened in my life. And they just saw that and, and kind of sensed that. So when I said, you know, I'm thinking about dropping out 
to tour in a punk rock band. I, my parents don't even know what punk rock is, but <laughs> it didn't sound good to them. Uh, you know, obviously they were concerned, but but they did uh, eventually come around uh, and, and encouraged me to kind of follow my passions and, and, and hoped that one day I would eventually go back to, to school, to finishing, because, I mean, the stakes were kind of high. This was two months before I graduated on a uh, on a full ride scholarship with a double major from a UC school. So it wasn't like, I was just like, ah, I'm going to stop taking a few classes. I was like right at the finish line, but I just felt like I just couldn't bear going anymore. And so, um, you know, both of them are really, really hardworking. They both immigrated to the U S under some pretty tough conditions. My, my dad from the Canton area, my mom, my mom from the Taiwan, uh, or Taipei area. And so I, they, they would always tell me, like uh, my dad would say this over and over again, work with your brains and not with your back. Cause it just worked so hard that they, they just couldn't bear the idea of that their children would have to work with labor and, and instead of like using their intelligence. Uh, you're obviously a smart guy and teachers recognize that early on. Um, but you write in the book that, uh, your parents came in for a uh, meeting with them and and they gave them some advice for you uh, if they wanted you to sort of reach your potential. Yeah, so this is when um, I was testing my way into elementary school and uh, you know I took the placement test and I did awesome on them because like my parents are so worried about me doing well in school that um, when I was in preschool, they started giving me all these books, like advanced learning books, so that by the time I got into kindergarten, I tested into like third and fourth grade levels in English and math. And so the school was blown away. But they did tell my parents, they said, you know, if you, if you want them to really do well, you need to stop speaking your languages at home, like basically all of my first languages, which would be Cantonese, Mandarin, and Taiwanese, because they, they, they said that, uh, you know, I wouldn't be able to like fully sound like an American. Uh, and it was just like devastating because I didn't know this. I, I didn't know why they stopped speaking to me in, in this and, and didn't send me to Chinese school and why we only spoke English in the household, even though my grandparents did not. And later on, I, I didn't I didn't find out until I was in my 30s that they, they had this conversation that they kind of pulled my parents aside and and basically said, like, he'll never look like an American, but at least we can get him to sound like one. You know. um, and so you you moved to Portland, you were in a band, uh, but you wanted your own band and uh, you write that you had the name for the band before you had the band. Yeah. <laughs> so talk about that. Well, uh, so that, that, that band would have, you know, become the slants, but it was one of those things where I had this idea, this concept for a band. I wanted an Asian American band and, you know, band 101, if, if you, if you want to start a band, you got to have a name. And so I started asking different people I knew in town, all, all my friends uh, in, in Portland, Oregon, by the way, has this nickname. They call it America's whitest major city. So I didn't have any Asian friends, and but I would go to them and I would just say, hey, what's something you think all Asian people have in common? And they would always say slanted eyes. And for me, I thought, you know, it's really interesting because first of all, it's not true. Like not all Asians have slanted eyes. We're not the only people on earth with any kind of slant to our eyes. 
But I also thought back about my childhood experiences. I was viciously bullied. I was physically attacked multiple times for having these facial features, for having these eyes. And I always associated those things with like profound shame. And I knew because Asians are the most bullied demographic in the United States that I wasn't alone. So I thought, what if we took it, flipped it around, turned the stereotype like upside down and brought pride to it instead? Uh, you know, what if we did that? And we would call it the slants because we could sing about our perspective or our slant on life of what, it, what it's like to be people of color while kind of paying homage to all these Asian American pioneers who are who are using this term in this really cool, self-empowering kind of way. Like we didn't play punk rock music, but I was like, that is so punk rock. And tell me why it was important to you to have an Asian American band. I mean, because it was novel, because it said something about the message you wanted to send? Well, it was because I saw such a lack of representation. So I, I oftentimes share this story of how, um, you know, the, the idea came to me in 2004 when I was watching a movie, Kill Bill. And, and, and there's this like scene where the woman, uh, Orini, she's walking into a restaurant with her gang of crazy 88s. It's the like Yakuza or Asian mafia that she had led. And like the, it's, it's in all of Tarantino's films. Like it's this trademark move he does where the music's playing, people are walking and they look really badass. But as I watched it, something really struck me about that scene. And that's when I realized it was the first time that I had ever seen an American produced film that showed Asians as cool, confident, and sexy. I mean, 2004, like decades before Fresh Off the Boat and Crazy Rich Asians was killing it in the theaters. Like this is all we had. Like growing up, I didn't have any kind of social mirrors. I didn't have anyone that looked like me um, in the movies, let alone rock and roll. So I thought, you know, if Hollywood is bad, then ah, the music industry must be much worse because, you know, there's over 17 million Asian Americans. And up until that time period, not a single one had ever been featured in Billboard, Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, Spin, uh, MTV, back when they used to play music videos. Like, we were pretty much invisible. It was almost as if we did not exist in, in, in the world of music. And I, that's when I thought something needs to change. Like, I, I, you know, when I thought back about my childhood, I, I thought how important is it to be able to see yourself in something? And I thought maybe for another generation, we, that could be us and they could be rock and roll. Um, so your uh, fight that, that has led to this book uh, is about a trademark. You wanted to trademark uh, the band's name, or you wanted to have the trademark registered. Um, it, uh, for those of you who aren't trademark specialists, uh, which includes me to about until about two years ago, um, you can Simon can call his band whatever he wants to. He can trademark that name, but he has to get it registered by the federal government for it to really have much teeth um, and, uh, and much the protection that a trademark is supposed to give you. Um, I'll let you uh, explain why you needed the trademark and why you, the trademark registered and why you didn't think it was going to be that big a deal. Sure. So uh, trademark registrations are really, really common for, for musicians and for bands because the, the reality is that if you want to get a record label deal, a seek licensing deal, or many other kind of forms of um, 
opportunities to expand your platform, you need to be able to protect your intellectual property rights. So copyrights and trademarks are like the two biggest forms of protection in that world. Um, in 2009, I met this guy named Spencer who, who was a, an attorney and he said, you should apply to get your trademark registered. Of course, as a starving musician, I thought this sounded really expensive, but he assured me it's only a few hundred dollars and in like six months, this whole thing's going to be over with. It turned out a bit different for me and, you know, obviously it took me nearly eight years and, and I kind of got thrown into this crash course of the world of trademarks, learning how it's actually very, very crucial, not only for, for artists and organizations, small businesses and so on, but how um, that process normally is just a few months. Like, But, you know, we, we ended up encountering something very different because the government had, had problems with our name. Uh, the government said that you violated that your name would violate a part of the trademark law that uh, Congress has said that the the office may not register trademarks that are disparaging, uh, and that meant disparaging to an individual or disparaging to groups. Um, and uh, it, well, you can tell the story because I know you like telling it more about uh, what the agency, I thought the office went through to uh, discover whether or not the slants was a disparaging name. Well, about six months after I spoke with Spencer, that initial conversation to, to apply for the trademark, he called me up and he said, Simon, we, we got a problem uh, with your application. And of course, I ask, what is it? He says, the trademark office says your name is disparaging to persons of dis, uh, Asian descent. And that's when I learned of this, this law, Section 2A of the Lanham Act, which, as you mentioned, uh, makes it so they, you know, they're not supposed to register marks that are considered disparaging. And of course, my question is, like, don't they know we're of Asian descent? And he says, well, that's kind of obvious. I'm like, okay, you know, we've been working with for over two years in our community, doing all these festivals and working with all these organizations. Um, who did they find who was disparaged, who was really upset by our name? And he says, nobody. And I'm like, what, what do you mean nobody? He's like, no, nobody. But they did quote UrbanDictionary.com. And they, uh, they use photos of Miley Cyrus pulling her eyes back in this slant eye gesture. And that's when we thought, well, they, they must, maybe they just don't get it. Like, you know, and we can correct them on it. We can appeal because the, the way the law works is it's not just like what anyone says to be disparaging. They, they say that a substantial composite of the reference group has to find it disparaging. So in this case, a whole lot of Asian uh, and Asian Americans need to find the term slants disparaging when a band uses it. But, you know, Actually, even to this day, the, the trademark office hasn't found a single person, let alone like a whole substantial composite of them. So it, it just like shows how like these these terms, like when you actually ask somebody like, what does disparaging mean? What does substantial composite mean? Like nobody is able to actually tell you. Uh, so it uh, he gets rejected. He appeals. He gets rejected again. Uh, so you go to court, and uh, they sort of threw in an argument. You, you tried to convince them, basically, that it wasn't disparaging, but then threw in an argument about the First Amendment, that 
it's not up to the government to decide what's disparaging or uh, maybe more accurately the way it turned out, um, that uh, that is a viewpoint that the government can't have. In other words, you can't say that uh, yay Asians is okay, but boo Asians is not okay, because that's taking sides. Um, but that was sort of an argument that was sort of tossed in, but then the judges at the um, federal circuit seized on it, correct? That's correct, yeah. For most of the years of us um, arguing our case, it, it, we had two kind of main arguments. One was that we're not disparaging, and we kind of went to the extent of getting dictionary experts, independent national surveys, scholars, executive directors of numerous prominent Asian American organizations, all to weigh in on this. Uh, and In total, like several thousand Asian Americans weighed in on our case. And the trademark office said it's not good enough because UrbanDictionary.com says it's offensive, and uh, and they started using dictionaries from you know the 1940s, but not American dictionaries, British dictionaries to kind of prove their point. Um, then our argument kind of shifted into very technical and procedural um, arguments. Basically, the trademark office broke their own rules. Uh, you know, one of the things that we had asked was. If slant is this inherent racial slur that the government claimed it is, how come they let everybody else have it? You know, they had over 800 applications for the term slant, but I'm the only one in U.S. history to be denied a registration for it. And when we asked them why that was the case, uh, the trademark office said, it's because you're too Asian. You know, they their, their actual words are, it is incontestable that the applicant, or me, is of Asian descent and part of an Asian band. Like, in other words, the the uh, if people saw the slants, like the words the slants, and then they saw our faces, they would automatically think racial slur instead of any other possible definition. But that's a more convoluted way of saying anyone can register slant as long as they're not Asian. So we, we tried to include these other kinds of arguments. I mean, that would be an equal protection argument, but the court wasn't hearing any of it. It was, it was kind of this last minute, the junior associate, which is kind of like the lowest guy in the, uh, on the, the, the ladder, um, threw in this First Amendment argument. And his rationale was, just in case it ever goes up, it totally won't ever go up. But in case it does, he puts this like pretty weak, like two-page argument about the First Amendment, and, and the court seized on it. They said, you know what? We don't care about all these other issues. We don't care that they use your, their, your race against you. We don't care that they, they had these really biased searches. We only want to hear about the First Amendment and whether or not this, this law violates uh, the First Amendment. And so that's kind of how that all came about. Like, if we didn't have the, the right lineup of, of judges, if we didn't have this junior associate who just wanted to throw in a First Amendment argument just because and just because he wanted to like see where it went, I, I don't think we would be here today. Yeah. Well, timing is everything. And so, but you did and you won uh, at the federal circuit. They declared that the law was unconstitutional because it violated the First Amendment. Uh, and then the government, uh, you heard Simon say, took it up, takes it up. That means you take it to the Supreme Court. Um, you write that you don't start a band thinking that you'll go to the Supreme Court, uh, but you did, and 
what was that feeling like when you found out that the Supreme Court was going to rule on your band? Well, I'm an NPR Greek, so I was like pretty excited. I was like, oh, maybe Nina Totenberg will talk to me. <laughs> but it, 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 like, it, it's kind of this twofold. I take life. that personally. <laughs> It's been a pleasure knowing you as well. I'm just saying, like, all of it was just like this surreal mix of emotions because um, for a long time I, sus I suspected that it might go to the Supreme Court. In fact, when we were at the federal circuit, uh, we had the attorneys from the ACLU present as well, and they, everyone was telling me whether we win or lose, we're, we're, this is going to go to the Supreme Court because the government doesn't take the cancellation of its laws lightly, like they're compelled to defend it. And if I lost at the, at the federal circuit, my attorneys would, of course, do everything in their power to, to help me. So we, we kind of suspected it might be a possibility, but still even knowing it like as a possibility and th and the reality are two very very different things I, you know like when when i heard about them doing it i thought oh no like this is going to be another few years of my life how much is this going to cost and at, at the same time i was also like excited because i had an opportunity to help shape law and hopefully help uh, advocate for a point of view of marginalized communities that hasn't been and especially on behalf of Asian Americans at the Supreme Court, which, you know, we have not been there very often in history. And most of the time when we did go up, it did not end very well. So I was like, maybe the court will hear us this time. Now, here's the part that uh, Simon doesn't like, and that's that there was another group that had uh, its name turned down uh, as a disparaging uh, trademark, and that was the Washington Redskins. And uh, the Redskins very much wanted the court to take uh, its case. Instead, the court took the slants uh, case. But whatever happened in the clant and for the slants was going to be very important for the Redskins. And uh, you write that uh, that was not the best part of this experience for you. No, I mean, it's definitely, um, it, it's tough knowing that my work might benefit someone that I disagreed with. But but that being said, I, I kind of came to realize after having many discussions with mentors, folks that work in social justice, um, many confederated tribal leaders, that it was still important for me to proceed with the case because, uh, you know, justice isn't only about punishing those who abuse our rights in our society. It really, like to have social equity and just justice, it's about lifting up those with the fewest options. And most communities of color and other marginalized groups don't have like a billion dollar franchise uh, to, to kind of fight our legal battles for us. Dan Snyder wasn't even like sweating it because he doesn't even pay his legal bills. The NFL pays it, paid them all for him. So it wasn't even affecting him. Um, but there was, there's, there was this other part of it that kind of I, th I thought was really interesting when I was speaking with um, different activists from the Native American community. And that was they were afraid if if the Washington football team did win, how it would be used to gloat over them even more. So they wanted a case that had more layers, more depth, more context for the, the Supreme Court to grab onto to say, like, you know what? Um, you know, these, view, these views matter as well. You uh, learned something once you got uh, had your hearing at the Supreme Court that I think I hear a lot from 
people who go before the court uh, with this case that they've had for so many years and they're so excited about. And then you learn that it's really not that much about you uh, anymore because the court doesn't it takes cases to decide. Obviously, it's going to decide the specific case that's in front of it, but the court has to figure out the decision, how the decision it makes is going to affect everyone else. The court takes these cases in order to make law and decide law and to to settle controversies and disagreements in the law. And so um, I once had a, a woman who... Uh, had her case before the Supreme Court. I saw her later down in the cafeteria, and I asked her, you know, what it had been like, and she said, nobody ever said my name. Uh, and she found that so uh, shocking and disheartening. Um, so tell, tell us what your experience was like sitting in the Supreme Court and hearing, in your case, it was only eight uh, justices because Justice Scalia, uh, no, was Scalia had passed, uh, Gorsuch had not entered the court yet. Yeah, so you only had uh, eight. But tell us what it was like. Well, in, in my case, they did use my name. <laughs> they used the name of my band uh, many times. But I, I felt invisible. Like, d despite them using my name and the name of my band, I, I felt like the band that was being discussed was not my band. And that's because the, the government was sitting there arguing about how there is this band that was indeed disparaging to, to our community. And, and I just wished I could have explained it to them and said, no, like we're, we're very active in our community. And like we, we do all kinds of things. Like we, we dedicated a hundred percent of the profits from our second album specifically to address the disparities of cancer rates that Asian American women face. We, we work with anti-bullying programs, including that with uh, President Barack Obama. Like we, we did Asian American outreach on behalf of the Department of Defense. And, and for many years, um, when Asian American youth would were severely bullied, they would reach out to us and I would have to like counsel kids, like some of them even considering taking their own lives. And I was like, that's, you know, the band you're talking about is not us. We were deeply involved and we care very much about our community, but these are things, you know, this is the irony of things. Like I, I'm fighting for freedom of speech at the nation's highest court and I can't say a damn thing in the courtroom. You know, they're they're arguing about what's offensive to Asian people, and the only Asian people in the room are not allowed to say anything. So I had to kind of sit there and and hope that my attorney would do okay, and and that someone would pick up on it. But I will say that like halfway through the arguments, there was a very very particular moment that that jumped out at me, and because I was just feeling so distraught uh, while I was there. But as we're sitting there. I hear this little voice pop up and, and begin to speak. And turns out it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she's asking the government, she says, doesn't it matter that everyone knows the slants are Asian? They're not using the word to disparage, but to describe and to remove the sting from the term. And I remember sitting there and I was just like, yo, <laughs> I think I'm in love with the Supreme Court justice. Like, you know, at that moment, notorious RBG helped me feel seen. And I, and I thought, okay, hopefully, like, reason, like, it, 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 like, prevails today. So he makes it sound bad, but he won unanimously. <laughs> um, 
It turned out okay. <laughs> Although the justices didn't really agree on why you won. Do you want to explain that? Uh, well, apparently they can't just agree like yay or nay on something. <laughs> Everyone has to have an opinion. <laughs> in, in, in my case, there were there were multiple opinions for um, different justices signed on to the brief for for different or opinions for different reasons. So some agreed that the the law, the provision of law that I was fighting against, was indeed viewpoint discrimination. Um, there's a little tidbit in there about it being like that it should be void for being constitutionally vague. Like in other words, like some people would sometimes get some marks and other people would sometimes not. And sometimes it'd be for the exact same word uh, and sometimes same word for the same product. And so that, that was like really confusing and weird to me, especially on the day that we got the decision, because, you know, I, I, I get all these messages at six in the morning, like over 700 notifications on my phone. And I'm like, what's going on? I, I check it and it's Twitter, like OPBR and PR affiliate saying, you know, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of our band. But like, even though like two minutes after that, I started getting all these calls from journalists, I had no idea what the decision was. In fact, none of them had read it either. They just like, oh, they won. Okay, let's do an interview. And they're asking me how I felt about it. But I didn't even have time to, to go into it. It, it, let alone read multiple different opinions with some with different kind of current concurrences. Now, I'm going to ask you to read uh, something from that afternoon. Do we have find that spot yeah. in the book uh, or that day where you found out that you had won? I will just tell folks uh, who may or may not know how the Supreme Court works. Nobody knows when the court is going to issue an opinion. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I know that there will be opinions, but I have no idea what they will be. And so unless it gets to the very last day and there are only two cases they haven't decided, well, then you know what you're going to get that day. Uh, and otherwise, it just sort of pops up when it's ready. And so Simon won, uh, but uh, I think uh, was very um, conflicted about the victory. I'm going to, and I'm going to ask, I've asked him to read part of the book where he describes that. Sure. It says, thus, the day of my so-called First Amendment victory was a cataclysmic mix of trepidation and sorrow for those who felt an important protection against offensive speech was lost. Those negative emotions coexisted with the exhilaration from knowing that our case liberated marginalized groups from government overreach and inequitable processes. I felt as if my heart were on a pendulum, wildly swinging from one end to another, but without the ability to stop and process the experience. When reporters and angry activists pulled me back and forth, comments like those that Spencer brought me uh, brought me back to my center. I cared about how people were feeling. The problem was, I just didn't know how I felt. Almost eight years of my life, about 2,800 days, were poured into this battle for self-identity. But I didn't even have 28 minutes to pause in solitude and reflect until I mowed the lawn. Um, so I think it's interesting that you put so much time in it and then uh, you sort of worried about whether or not in the end you, you had done the right thing, the right outcome. Uh, you, I'm sure you knew that, the, that you thought it was the right outcome, but um, it's interesting that you had such mixed emotions about it. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it was just one of those things that over the years, there are so many um, assumptions about my case, about who I was, about the work of our band, or even about the meaning of our band's name. And then there was a lot of like kind of mischaracterizations about how trademark law worked that it caused great pain in people, you know, especially people who thought like we need this law because we don't want, you know, bad people to benefit from it. We don't want them to abuse it using hate speech. And I could certainly empathize and, and, and feel for that because, you know, as, as the someone who's been on the receiving end of hate speech many times in my life, I knew how that pain just like could could just really tear you up. But at the same time, I also knew that the law that they wanted to rely on, the government that they wanted to believe in, wasn't going to be there when they needed it when it came to trademark registrations. Like, you know, the, the government really didn't care that much about the Washington football team. They only started making a deal out of it um, when when activists were were kind of protesting it. But all along the the, the path of that particular lawsuit, like during that time period, the government kept giving out new trademark registrations for Redskin. And, and my point was always like, if the government really cared about fighting against racism, why didn't they pull the registrations of the KKK or Stormfront? It's like, you know, it, it wasn't designed for that particular purpose. Like, I mean, even if you think about when the law originated, it was in the middle of the Jim Crow era. The government was not thinking about communities of color then. But how do you express that to someone who is hurting? How do you express that to somebody who uh, feel like they just lost a major, major part of their their battle for for justice? Uh, and like when I, whenever I tried to explain it, it, it would oftentimes just anger people more, make them feel even more upset. So I was just trying to figure out how to like find that particular balance and 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 you know how I could turn to people to help with this and say like there is a better way. Like I don't have different values than you. We just have different ideas about how to express those values in our society. Do you think, uh, what people often ask me, how do you stay neutral, objective, and when you're writing about these cases, and I always say it's very easy to do at the Supreme Court because you usually have very good lawyers on both sides of the issue. You have groups on both sides of the issue, especially when it gets to the Supreme Court that make very good arguments, or I think they're very good. And you had most of the people and groups who filed in this case filed on your side, but there were some on the other side. And I remember talking to someone from the Kormatsu Center who said, you know, I think this is a generational thing and that Simon doesn't understand that I did, I was called uh, that word when I was young and it hurt. And um, that maybe a younger generation doesn't see that, but I remember it and it hurt me. So is it a generational thing, do you think? I, I don't think it's a a generational issue because when when all these surveys were done it felt that uh, they found that across the board um it didn't matter what generation people were from they still supported our work i mean we have incarceration camp survivors uh being you kind of united with their grandkids uh, rediscovering that history because of our band and the music videos and work we've done so like they've never had problems with it but i do think that uh it doesn't cut across generational lines, but rather on lines of ideology. Like, do you believe in reappropriation? Does one believe in the power for groups to take 
stigmatizing labels and words and ideas and turn them into something truly empowering. Because if you don't believe in that, then you're not going to believe in our work. You're not going to believe in the work of most of the queer community either. Like, because th these are kind of controversial ideas about how to create social change. And, you know, I've met young people as well as old people who, who kind of grapple with these ideas of like whether or not we should use words um, despite the intention behind them. And so I, I think, you know, with, with the, the person you're referring to in, in particular, you know, we've sat on many panels together. And so I, I've heard his, um, his uh, perspective a number of times and, and we've had deep discussions about it. But I, I, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, he doesn't believe that the term slant can be reappropriated. And so if you don't believe it's a possibility, then you're not going to see this the work that we do as as important or um, as affecting the kind of change that we we seek. In in your case and in a subsequent case, which is at the court now about uh, trademarks, um, you can tell that the undercurrent at the court that they don't really want to say talk about, but is there is that they're very worried that someone will want to register a trademark for the N word and that the government will have to uh, agree to that if these laws are all struck down. Um, and so tell me uh, your perspective on that. I think I'm sure you felt that too oh, at the sure. argument. Uh, but to me, it's like if you really care about fighting against racism, don't focus on the words. Focus on the culture, focus on the systems, and the laws that drive racism. Because if it, if it were only about the words, anyone could take any kind of term and make it a disparaging term. Uh, you know, during the 2016 election, I heard the term China used again and again with such venom and disdain that I felt it worse than when I was ever called a gook or a chink or a jap because uh, that had weight behind it, it, had power behind it. So I'm always like, don't necessarily focus on the symptoms of, of a problem, Fo focus on the root causes. And in this case, that's addressing our culture. It's, it's addressing institutionalized racism because the reality is like, if someone wanted to call anyone else a hateful term, they're not going to go to the find permission at the trademark office to do so. They just go ahead and use those terms. They don't like, well, let me apply for this registration, pay the fee and wait a few months and see if I get to use this term against you. They just use it. So it's like, if your end goal is to stop, you know, hateful words or hateful speech, this isn't it. Like we're going to have to dig a little deeper as a culture. I think it's comfort for people who think, Hey, they can't get a trademark for it. At least we could stop them there. But I think that's being kind of, um, it, it allows a certain kind of apathy because then we can say, well, at least we did that. And now we don't have to worry about these, these other issues that are far more complex that have a much longer arc when it terms, when it comes to like resolving issues that are plagued by our society. Are you starting to think Simon should have argued his own case? Um, uh, Let's take some questions from you guys, and I, I will have uh, some more myself. There's a mic here. Oh. There's a mic there. He's yep. already at it. Oh, I'm here. There we go. Uh, by the way, the hate term was China. It wasn't China. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Trump doesn't know how to pronounce the word. Um, your lawyer initially told you that this would cost a couple hundred dollars. Uh, I'm presuming it, it actually costs a little, a little more. 
Um, and I'm presuming PTO did not pick up the cost of your legal fees. Could you address at all how you managed to stay in the fight so long? Who, who supported you? Sure. Um, so yeah, it definitely wasn't a few hundred dollars. There were several more digits added to that particular figure. I, I, uh, I, I did whatever I had to do to survive. Um, that oftentimes meant taking additional jobs that oftentimes, unfortunately, meant doing things that was detrimental to the work of my band, which caused several band members to leave as well. Like, because when you're faced with a huge court fee and and a, you need to repair the tour bus, what do you pick? Well, I picked like paying the lawyers because I thought that would get, get in a lot more trouble if I didn't pay them. And I also knew that there was a more of a pending deadline. So it was just constantly making these choices. At one point, I, I knew that I could only afford to eat one meal a day until I got the next filing done, until I could pick up another job, until I got my tax return. Or it was like just constantly looking at these this growing pile of bills. And 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 to be clear, my, my attorneys did this pro bono. They were very, very generous in, the, in that regard. But um, fighting a case means you have to pay for court fees. Every time we filed a new brief at the trademark office or a federal court, you had to pay fees and you have to pay for printing. And you can't use any printer. Like even though I had a printer and stapler at home, you have to use like a court approved, like a pellet printer. And so I would get invoices between five and $11,000 for printing. And so that was, that was a setback as well. And uh, you're right in that even if you win a case at the highest court of the land, even if you win, you don't get your fees reimbursed. The government doesn't say, you know what, we are wrong. Here's a check for all that, all that. Here's eight years of your life back. Um, it's more like, oh, here's a piece of paper that says the slants is now a registered trademark. The junior associate who developed the First Amendment argument, I presume now he's a senior partner, is he? Or what, what happened to him? Uh, well, he's, uh, he, he was made partner. He, both him and the lead attorney joined a new firm. So they're, they're doing pretty okay. <laughs> and and that, was, that was my hope too, because we had a lot of attorneys um, approach us who wanted to pick it up. Like when you, when you get uh, what's called granted cert at the Supreme Court, like everybody wants to take that case up because they want another kind of star on their resume. And, and so I probably had 50, 60 attorneys reach out to me. But um, I, I just kept thinking, where were you five years ago when I needed someone to believe in me? And if, if I win, then the guys who work with their blood, sweat and tears they, they get something out of it, something that I, I was never able to give them before, which is like actually getting paid. The one question I'll just add that you can always ask, a, you can ask an attorney and they'll be able to answer without looking it up is how many times have you argued before the Supreme Court? 32, 16, 12. Um, it's a big deal and Simon's right, everyone wants to do it. Uh, at that point, and sometimes it's a good idea to have one of those guys sure. do it. Hi, Simon. I, I watched your three TEDx talks last night. I haven't had a chance to read your book because I just got it. Um, but I think there's a really lovely balance in your last TED talk about you listening to white supremacists and engaging with them and not putting them on the defensive, and then you wanting to be heard 
and saying that Ruth Bader Ginsburg heard you and you won, and that's lovely. And so I want to thank you for everything you've done and all the sacrifices you made. And my question is, what's next for you, and what would you ask us to do? Oh, um, that's a great question. <laughs> so there's a couple of next things in, in, in my particular world, because it's like, what do you do after you, you win a case? Uh, well, for us, we decided we want to find more ways to give back. So I actually started a nonprofit organization. It's called the Slants Foundation. We're now raising money so I could provide scholarships and mentoring to activists uh, who, are, who engage in the arts, uh, and activists of color. And so right now I'm, the, I'm in the midst of fundraising. And in fact, part of my book tour and speaking and concerts and all that stuff is, is going towards this because I want to issue up my first troublemaker scholarship to, to kind of fund those people who want to stir things up a bit. Um, the other thing that we've been working on for the past year or so is a, is a Broadway musical. So I had, I had a director uh, and writer reach out to me uh, last year who wanted to write like a musical based on my life. And I, I told them I didn't really want anything to do with it, that they could just go ahead and write it if they wanted to write it. I just said, please don't make this about a white band. <laughs> like keep it as an Asian American band so that, you know, because if it could provide roles on Broadway for Asian Americans, that would be the best thing I could ever think of happening. Uh, but they actually wanted a, a little bit more. So I answered a ton of questions. He actually read a very early and terrible draft of this book. And um, so that he could start writing a script. And now Joe, my, my guitarist and I have been composing music for this musical. So uh, that that's the other project that's kind of been in the works. One thing that surprised me a little is that uh, Simon is the original slant, um, but the only remaining slant. See, it does sound bad when a white person says it, doesn't it? Um, but uh, how many have there? How many members have there been in the band? Uh, Eleven. So if you count, um, including the people who are who are still here. How many are there now? How, how many are now? Uh, three of us. So me, Joe, and then we have a lead singer. Uh, so Ken Ken Shima is our singer, but he just had a baby like a few months ago. So he's on uh, you know leave at the moment. Uh -huh. Who else? So during your toughest times when you were about, where did you find courage to keep going? And um, those people that you mentioned earlier who felt that your fighting for this case went against what they had worked so hard for, how did you comfort So for me, I, I mean, I, I could not have done this without the generosity of, of other people. I mean, and I mean generosity in so many ways, for their time, for their compassion, for their encouragement, for their for their them being generous and providing wisdom. Uh, I had a lot of mentors who just really uh, I look up to in the world of social justice who who really helped me think about these ideas more more profoundly and deeply than I ever thought I would have. And and I think it was their words and encouragement that really kind of kept me going because I kept thinking about this bigger picture of who is affected by our laws, who has dignity is, is, is kind of like a theme in my book, but like who has the dignity of being able to choose their own identity and not have it used against them. Um, when you think about those things, it, it, it just, 
I don't know, it, it just gives you a certain kind of drive. Like a lot of people, in fact, uh, you know, the, the question earlier was like, how much did this cost? And, and people oftentimes ask me, like, how much does it cost to go to the Supreme Court? And I always tell them that, you know, it, the, the, that figure can vary, but the most expensive, the, the biggest cost of all is the cost of walking away. What happens when you're in the right place at the right time to affect change and you decide that you don't want to do it because it's too expensive or too hard and you know that by you walking away, other people will suffer? Um, I, I felt like I couldn't do that. And so um, I continued to persist even if people had a lot of misunderstandings. There was a lot of like strange conspiracy theories written about me. Um, people uh, created a parody account of me, uh, to, to make it say all kinds of racist things. I was doxxed a few times where people would, um, you know, dump garbage in my front lawn. It, it's like, but that only made me want to pursue it more because I knew I didn't want someone else to like experience these kinds of things. I felt like I, I can just do it. And when it came to folks who, who, who I disagreed with, I oftentimes would offer them like, let's meet up for tea. Let's sit down and talk. And I, I would love to hear what you have to say. And whenever I did that, whenever we actually had a chance to engage, we would both leave changed. It would, it would provide this thing. Like if we're just shouting at each other, if we're just tweeting at each other, nothing was really, no difference was being made. But when we actually had a chance to sit down, including, um, you know, I, I sat down with one of the co-founders of the Not Your Mascot movement. She's now like an active su a supporter of mine. And, and even after our decision was made, she went on several prominent Native American radio stations to say like, no, we shouldn't be slamming the slants. We should be slamming this government for not treating Native Americans properly. And, and we should be slamming Dan Snyder who for continuing to use his name. Like these are our allies and we need to treat them as such. And so, um, even even folks that I thought would you know that we we would have a lot of dis disagreement turns out they ended up being some of the the most important pieces of encouragement that I'd ever received. There's a uh, as you, I alluded to it earlier. There's a sequel uh, to Simon's case at the Supreme Court right now. It involves another part of the trademark law that has to do with not registering scandalous uh, trademarks and. It's brought by someone who has a line of clothing uh, that's uh, F-U-C-T. So say that in your heads. Um, the government lawyer uh, called it, and I wrote it down because I couldn't do it justice, that it would be perceived by a substantial segment of the public as the equivalent of the profane past participle form of perhaps the paradigmatic word of profanity in our language. Uh, the court did not uh, seem to think that actually this case was as easy as uh, Simon's case was. We don't have the decision yet, but uh, stay tuned, um, and we'll see if another part of the trademark law is, uh, is going down. Are there any other questions? Yes. brought up that follow-on case. It, it, do I remember correctly that you or at least someone on your behalf filed an amicus brief in that case? Uh, that's correct. I, I filed a brief in support of Brunetti, the the, the guy who has the clothing company. Right. And <laughs> so why did you choose to do that? Because I believe that um, the other parts of the Lanham Act, the scandalous and moral provisions, are also as kind of subjective and vague as the disparagement provision. I think at the end of the day, it's not up to the government to make these decisions. 
when you look at um, several of the briefs, uh, you'll see how there are vast inconsistencies across the board. Like why is French Connection UK, which is FC UK okay, why is that okay, but F-U-C-T is not? You know, why are why is the F word okay? Because that's a literal trademark registration. Um, so is WTF. So are many, many other things. Like, I think that language is not something that is fixed in our society. Language only represents our ideas, our feelings. They're symbols. And they change over time. Our laws need to reflect this ability to change as well. You know, if we have forever lock something away, it's like, that's a bad word then we don't have the ability for people to use it in really profound, meaningful, and useful kinds of ways, especially in art. Like if you think about it, um, no one has a problem with copyrights. You can, you, you can write a book about the most terrible things in the world. You can paint, you can take pictures, you can create films that are like of pretty disturbing content. And that all is recorded by the Library of Congress with full copyright protection. And because we recognize that expression is kind of this human right, it, it has to do with our dignity. We shouldn't have someone saying like, no, um, you know, the, these words are okay and these words aren't okay, especially if that person has no connection with your community, your intention, or your artistic endeavors, or even your own business. It uh, And the, I have to say the trademark office does such a bad job of accepting some for registration and turning away others that it is very hard for them to make the uh, uh, case. And it's sort of, in Simon's case, in this recent one, there's always a brief that someone has gone through and found all the inconsistencies. Uh, my favorite part of the, the most recent one was that someone uh, went and I can't remember how many examples they found, but it was an awful lot in which someone was turned down because one, uh, it was scandalous, and two, it was too close to a trademark that they've already registered. <laughs> uh, and so that's always a problem for the office when they get in court. Um, thanks, Simon. Thanks to all of you for coming. We'll be signing Thank books. You. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of the 